we sing it, we pray it, and every president that I've known has said it at the end of every speech. What is it? God bless America. And I think you'd agree with me that God has indeed blessed America. And for all her faults and failings over the past 242 years, I believe the United States of America is the greatest nation on earth. And today, America is a beacon of freedom and equal opportunity. Now, America's not perfect. Don't get me wrong. But America provides unparalleled freedoms of speech and religion, provides people the right and opportunity to make of their life what they want, to dream what they want, to strive toward achieving those dreams. God has blessed America. And many Americans have in turn used those blessings to bless others. Americans, again, not everybody, but Americans by and large are a generous people. Americans regularly give financially, sacrifice their time and energy, even put their lives at risk to protect, to defend, to liberate, and to meet the needs of other people around the world. America has done more uh, and given more to fight for human rights, to respond to natural disasters, to rescue people from slavery, to cure diseases, and to feed the hungry than any other nation on earth. And American churches have sent more missionaries around the world than any other nation. However, we must not take these things for granted. Just because America has been a great nation blessed by God does not mean that God is obligated to bless America tomorrow. Because I don't believe that God will continue to bless us if we as a nation don't in turn bless Him. If we don't give Him the praise He deserves. If we don't use His blessings to bless others then we have no right to expect that God will bless us. Many of you all know I like comic book superheroes and superhero movies and that sort of thing. And, and you might know that uh, in the Spider-Man comics and movies, Spider-Man, or you know, Peter Parker's... Peter Parker is Spider-Man, by the way. I hope that didn't just spoil that for anybody. But <laughs> Peter Parker's Uncle Ben tells him something that kind of becomes Spider-Man's motto. You probably know what I'm going to say. With great power comes... Great responsibility. Or as Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. This is also the message we find in Psalms 111 and 112. If you'll turn in your Bibles to that. These two Psalms together remind us of God's blessings on His people and his expectations of his people. And while these psalms are, are, of course, about specifically God's blessings on the nation of Israel, we can apply them to ourselves today. You know, as believers living in 21st century America, we have been blessed more than any generation of Christian who have ever lived. You and I today have more resources, information, freedoms, and opportunities than any Christian has ever had anywhere. Let that sink in for a minute. And to whom much is given, much is required. With such great blessings come great responsibilities. 
So let's dive into these two psalms and see what they have to say to us about this today. These two psalms, interestingly enough, are acrostics, meaning that each line of the psalm in Hebrew begins with the next letter of the alphabet. And, and they begin with the exclamation, Hallelujah. Your translation probably says, Praise the Lord. Right there, the first thing in Psalm 111 and Psalm 12. So these are psalms of praise. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But scholars also categorize them as psalms of retribution. Now, what that means is, that doesn't mean, you know, retribution. That kind of sounds harsh. But what that means is that both of these psalms see the world through the lens that says, you reap what you sow. Okay, sort of like Job, kind of his, Job's friends, you know, talk about that. And a lot of Proverbs talk about that. You reap what you sow. But if we consider the order in which these two psalms are written, what Psalm 11 is about, which is about... God's great blessings, and then Psalm 112, which is about our great responsibility, then it's almost making the case that you should sow what you reap instead of you reap what you sow. In other words, God blesses us, and then God expects us to sow actions that are consistent with a blessed people. Because to whom much is given, say it with me, much is required. With great blessings come... Great responsibilities. Look at Psalm 111, uh, verse 10, and Psalm 112, verse 1. This is the crux of these psalms. They're found in these two verses that that are back-to-back. Psalm 111, 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all who follow His precepts have good understanding. To Him belongs eternal praise. And then, so the next verse, Praise the Lord. To To Him belongs eternal praise. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. So we see in these two verses that the beginning of wisdom and good understanding is the fear of the Lord, which means, and it tells us right there in verse 10, that means to follow his precepts, and in verse 1, to delight in his commands. In other words, to fear God is to love God's Word and live by God's Word. And a person who loves and lives by God's Word will be wise, will have good understanding, which will result in two things. In verse 10, eternal praise to God. And in verse 1, blessings for us. So let's go back to Psalm 111. And let's look at the blessings for which God deserves our eternal praise. We see Psalm 111 is about God's blessings. And it starts in verse 1 kind of focusing on us, on our worship. Look at verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will extol the Lord with all my heart in the counsel of the upright and in the assembly. So the, the beginning and the end of Psalm 111 are the only two places where it tells us to do anything. Verse 1, it tells us to praise, to extol the Lord. And the very last verse tells us to fear the Lord. The only two things, to fear and obey God, to worship and praise God. But this verse 1, I will extol the Lord, is more than just a command. It's the psalmist making a vow, a determination to praise God no matter what. Now, now many scholars think that these two psalms were written at the same time by the same author, either during the Babylonian exile or right after the Babylonian exile. So the idea is that we must resolve to praise God for His past faithfulness no matter how we feel about our present circumstances. And notice two things about this man's worship. First, it's done wholeheartedly. He says, I extol the Lord with all my heart. He isn't going through the motions. He's not doing this out of duty. 
He is passionately engaged in worshiping and praising the Lord for who He is and what He has done. And the second thing about this worship, it's done corporately. He's not keeping this praise to Himself. He's not praising God just in His private devotions. It says that He's doing it in the council of the upright and in the assembly. He goes to church to worship among the rest of God's people. And so we also should regularly gather with God's people to worship and praise Him with all our heart, in spirit and in truth, for God's great blessings. So quickly the psalmist moves from his worship, our worship, to God's works. And let's look at verses 2 through 7, and then I want to read verse 9. We'll come back to verse 8 later. Great are the works of the Lord. They are pondered by all who delight in them. Glorious and majestic are His deeds, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works, giving them the lands of other nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. And look at verse 9. He provided redemption for His people He ordained His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Now look back up at verse 2. Here the psalmist is looking to the past for encouragement, for the present, and for hope for the future. He ponders. That means he's thinking about, he's meditating on God's great past works, and he's delighting in them. You know, this is the reason that God gave Israel all those feasts and festivals and holy days. This is the reason why God inspired men to record God's past great works in Scripture. It's because God understands how forgetful we are. And when life gets tough, we tend to sort of panic. And we forget God's faithfulness. And so God wants to remind us of His faithful works. And we need to ponder God's great works because they reflect God's great character. Look at verse 3. Glorious and majestic are His deeds. God's deeds are glorious and majestic because He is glorious and majestic. And if we look at these verses here, just the rest of this psalm, notice beginning God's character described. In verse 3, He's described as glorious, majestic, and righteous. In verse 4, He's compassionate and gracious. In verse 5, He's generous and faithful. Verse 6 tells us He's powerful. Verse 7 says He's faithful, just, and trustworthy. And the rest of the psalm says that God is steadfast, upright, holy, awesome, and worthy of eternal praise. Who God is cannot be separated from what God does. God's attributes and God's actions are one. And verse 4 tells us that God wants us to remember these deeds because they do reveal to us that He is a gracious and compassionate God. So what are these great works, these majestic, glorious deeds for which God is worthy of eternal praise? We can group them into two categories here. Verses 5 and 6 tell us of God's provision. God's provision. God fed the hungry Israelites with manna and quail when they were in the wilderness. Gave them water from a rock. And then He brought them into the promised land and He gave them this land. He, he helped them to, to conquer the, the, the pagans that were living there and, and to establish the kingdom that He had promised to Abraham 400 years before. 
And then God entered into an eternal covenant with them on Mount Sinai, a promise that God never forgets, even though His people often forget. Because God promised Israel that as long as they were faithful and obedient to worship and fear Him, that He would be faithful to bless and defend them. But of course we know that Israel wasn't always faithful, were they? They often failed to worship, fear, and obey the Lord. They turned to idols. They rejected God's commands. They forgot their covenant promises. And when we do that, when we turn from the Lord to live in sinfulness, then we are in need of God's greatest work of all. And that's God's redemption. And we see that described in verse 9. You see, God keeps His end of the covenant even when His people don't. And to redeem, He provided redemption. What that means is to, to literally buy back, to rescue, to set free from slavery. In the Exodus, God redeemed His people, rescuing them from literal slavery in Egypt. But through the cross of Jesus Christ, God redeems lost people who are dead in their sins. They are slaves to sin. By the new covenant which God made possible through the blood of Jesus Christ to all people who call upon His name, He provides His greatest work, and that is the glorious work of redemption. You know, as much as God's hand of provision can teach us about His power and generosity, it is by this greater work of redemption that we learn how holy and awesome is His name. Amen? On Mount Sinai, as God entered into a covenant relationship with Israel, Moses asked to see the Lord in His full glory. And listen to how the Lord described Himself as He revealed all of His glory to Moses. In Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now Israel had already experienced God's power and provision in their journey through the wilderness. But to fully know the Lord... To really see His glory is to know the Lord as the gracious, compassionate God who is slow to anger but quick to forgive. And so if you really want to know the God who is worthy of eternal praise, look at the cross of Jesus Christ. I encourage you this afternoon to take your Bible and look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-10. through 10. It's written down there in your notes. And in this passage, Paul praises God four times for His great work of redemption through Christ. And three of those four times, He uses this phrase, to the praise of His glory. God's work of redemption is why we gather every Sunday to the praise of His glory. And my prayer this morning is that you have experienced this greatest work of God in your life. God's character is revealed to us through God's works. But secondly, they're revealed to us through God's Word. Let's look back at verse 7. Verse 7 starts with the works of His hand are faithful and just. But then it says all His precepts, that's His commands, His law, the Word of God, His precepts are trustworthy. They are steadfast forever and ever, done in faithfulness and uprightness. So here God's faithful and just works drive the psalmist to reflect on God's trustworthy Word. And look at how he describes God's Word. He first of all describes it as trustworthy. 
It's trustworthy. Psalm 119, 160 says, All your words are true. All your righteous laws are eternal. And Hebrews 6, 18 tells us that it is impossible for God to tell a lie. God's Word is trustworthy and true. You can count on God's promises. On Wednesday nights, we've been studying the book, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And in that, we've seen how, how historical evidence and archaeological evidence over the years have only affirmed and validated God's Word. We look at the Bible and it's amazing. The internal consistency and cohesiveness of the Bible's message. There's this amazing internal sense of unity. I mean, the Bible is 66 books written by dozens of authors in three languages over 1,500 years. But it tells one cohesive story. That's amazing. Not to mention all the countless promises and prophecies that have come true. God's Word is trustworthy. But secondly, he says that it's steadfast forever. In this psalm, three things are being described as forever. God's righteousness is forever in verse 3. God's covenant is forever in verses 5 and 9. And God's precepts are forever. They are steadfast. That means they stand the test of time. They're unshakable, unchangeable. Jesus Himself said, Heaven and earth will disappear, but My words will remain forever. The Bible doesn't change with the times. It's not swayed by opinion polls. And it is always, always on the right side of history. Social opinions and morals might change, but hallelujah, God's Word remains the same. And it is as trustworthy and true and relevant today as it has ever been. But he also tells us that God's Word is faithful and upright. Meaning that God's Word is infallible. It's dependable. And that's why true wisdom and understanding are found in fearing the Lord and following His Word. That's what it says in verse 10. And that is why the, why the man who fears the Lord and delights in God's Word is blessed. God's character is revealed to us through His work, through His words. These are some great blessings. While God has given us His provision, redemption, the revelation of His Word that is trustworthy and true and steadfast forever and faithful and upright and dependable. What blessings! Amen? And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that as we contemplate these blessings, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, as we praise and extol the Lord and ponder on His great works, Paul says we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. In other words, these great blessings of God that we think about today should transform us to begin to look like the God who blesses. And that's why Psalm 112 goes on to paint for us our responsibility. The attributes of God in Psalm 111 become the character qualities of His people in Psalm 112. We've talked about verse 1 already. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Now to fear the Lord means you take God seriously. It means you take God seriously. You give Him first place in your life. Fear is an interesting theme in this psalm, it's kind of like forever was repeated in Psalm 111. Fear is repeated in, three times in Psalm 112. 
in verses uh, 7 and 8, the psalmist says he does not fear bad news and he has no fear in the face of his enemies. Now, how can he be so fearless? Well, because in verse 1, he fears the Lord. And like I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, when we fear the Lord, we need fear nothing else. Verse 2 tells us that fearing the Lord leads to blessings on our children. It says, His children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. See, our faith directly impacts our families. When we fear the Lord, when we delight in His Word and praise His name, we will leave a spiritual legacy for the next generation. But we will also impact our generation because it says not only His children will be mighty in the land, but the generation of the upright, meaning the man who fears the Lord, his generation will be blessed. Let's talk about his contemporaries. His friends and neighbors and co-workers are blessed because he fears the Lord. We can have a great spiritual impact in our children and our grandchildren's lives and in the lives of everybody that we touch when we fear the Lord. And the rest of this psalm outlines how we can be a blessing to those around us. Let's briefly look at them and, and kind of consider the attributes of God these character qualities match up with. The first we see is generosity. Look at me with me at verses 3, 5, and 9. Wealth and riches are in His house and His righteousness endures forever. Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. He has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be lifted high in honor. Just as God was generous to provide Israel with food to eat and a land in which to live, so God's people should be generous toward others. The psalmist here in verse 3 tells us that wealth and riches are blessings from God on those who fear Him. Now, we tend to have some unhealthy views in our society about wealth and riches, about material gain. People either distrust wealth or they trust in wealth too much, right? And, and the first thing we have to understand is there's nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy. Today we hear a lot of voices decry the evil of the top 1% or how the wealthy need to pay their fair share or how profit and capitalism are these great injustices. But that's not true. Money that is honestly earned and wisely put to good use is a blessing, not a curse. And both Paul and Jesus talk about this. They both say that the worker is worth his wages. And the Bible time and again encourages us to work hard to earn money, to use wisdom in saving and spending money, and most of all, to be generous in giving our money away. We have to avoid the extreme that just sees material blessing and wealth as evil, but we also have to avoid the other extreme. That material riches is the end goal, and, and even some people believe that it's a certainty that if you live a certain way, if you do the right things, well, then God's going to give you all the desires of your heart. But we know that's not true, too. And so verse 3 is not a universal promise of eternal gain. Now, the Bible does teach that if we live according to God's commands, 
life will generally go well for us. That's the whole message of Proverbs. We were talking about that on Wednesday nights this past winter and spring. We've been working through Proverbs. The Proverbs teaches that if you are wise, if you fear the Lord, life generally works out for you. But the Bible also tells us that we live in a fallen world. And we will have trouble in this life. The truth is, material wealth is a blessing from God. And twice this psalm links it with righteousness. Because yes, righteousness does put us on a path that tends toward blessings, but doesn't guarantee it. But mostly because it takes righteousness to be a good steward of blessings. It's like the old saying goes, you know, with you know, power, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? And we've seen it before. People come into money and they get rich quick maybe even, and it ruins their lives. It takes wisdom and righteousness to be good stewards of God's blessings. And that's what we see here. We see here the expectation, the responsibility that comes with material blessings. It's that we will not selfishly hoard it, we will not just spend it on our pleasures, but that we will wisely and generously lend freely and scatter abroad our gifts to the poor. And when we do that, we demonstrate righteousness. And we receive both goodwill from others and honor from the Lord. Paul quotes this in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11, where he says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. When God blesses us in material ways, it is always so that we can take every occasion to generously bless others to the thanksgiving and praise of God. The second thing we see here is not just generosity, but godliness. In verses 4 through 6, the psalmist says, Even in darkness light dawns for the upright. For the gracious and compassionate and righteous man, good will come to him who is generous and lends freely, who conducts his affairs with justice. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. We see some godly characteristics in here. First is godly perspective. When it says light dawns for the upright, that's referring to spiritual enlightenment. In other words, God expects us to look at the world with the eyes of faith. He expects us to see what others cannot see. How do you look at the world? Do you look at life from a worldly perspective or with godly discernment and vision? God expects you to have a godly perspective on things. Secondly, godly grace. Look back at at chapter 111, verse 4. It tells us that the Lord is gracious and compassionate. And look at Psalm 112, verse 4. For the gracious and compassionate and righteous man. God expects us to be great, gracious and compassionate as He is. Are your words seasoned with grace? 
Do you treat people, not as they deserve, but as Jesus Christ has treated you? Are you slow to get angry and quick to forgive? Do you have godly grace? Do you have godly care? You see, to have compassion, to be gracious and compassionate, means that you feel deeply for others in need. It means that you're not insensitive or indifferent to those who are suffering. Over and over again in the Gospels, it says that Jesus was moved with compassion. Now, that means that Jesus didn't just see someone in need and feel bad for them. It means He acted upon it. He did something to help them. Does that describe you? Do you have godly care for other people? And we've already talked about the generosity part there in in verse 5. And that's an important way we can show compassionate care, isn't it? By lending and giving freely to people in need. So let's skip down to verse 6. And here we see godly standards. Godly standards. Compare verse 6 there. A righteous man will be remembered forever with uh, verse 3 in Psalm 111. Glorious and majestic are God's deeds and His righteousness endures forever. So not only will God's great deeds and His righteousness be remembered forever, but when we live righteous lives, we will be remembered forever. Now that's an amazing promise. Not only is God remembered forever, but the righteous man is remembered forever. Now what does it mean to be righteous? It means to refuse to conform to the ways of the world and instead to conform to the image of Christ. To live by God's standards. Are you conformed to the world's standards or to God's standards for right living? And the final thing we see in here is not only should we, are we responsible to be generous, not only are we responsible to have godly character, but we are responsible to be fearless. Look at verses 7 and 8. He will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. Now, this may sound more like a blessing than a responsibility, right? To be fearless. Well, that sounds like a blessing. But doesn't the strong person have a responsibility to defend the weak? Doesn't the courageous person have a responsibility to help the fearful? I think so. Don't I, as a father, bear responsibility for being brave and courageous for my daughter in the face of danger? You know, would it do her any good when, when you know, there's a tornado watch for me to run around wringing my hands? Now, Julia would say that I do that, but I don't. No, it wouldn't. She needs me to be brave on her behalf. It's a responsibility. You know, we talked about Psalm 23 last week, that we, we, need fear. we fear no evil because our shepherd is with us. He walks with us through the dark valleys. His rod and his staff comforts us. He prepares a table for us before our enemies because we have been blessed with the guiding and guarding presence of our shepherd. We will never be shaken. We don't have to fear any enemy. We don't have to fear the bad news that will inevitably come Our hearts are steadfast, firmly anchored in God. Therefore, we can have hope even in the face of bad news. And so our responsibility is to be beacons of light in the midst of other people's dark days. We can point them to the presence of the Good Shepherd in their own shadowy valleys. 
We can speak good news to them when they hear bad news. We can, as Paul writes, comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. I was talking with someone just this morning. It's been getting the grief books that we send when people lose a loved one. And she was telling me how she's been taking those, good, those books that have been very helpful to her and passing them along to other people who are in grief as well. That's what I'm talking about. That kind of unshaken fearlessness that we can stand in the face of our own grief and minister to other people in grief. And we do that because our good shepherd is with us. With great blessings come great responsibilities. We serve a great God. Amen? He calls us to be a great church. We are surrounded by great needs. And God has given us great opportunities The question is, will we make good use of His blessings? Will we make the most of every opportunity to bless others with the blessings we've received? The psalm here ends with a comparison of the wise man who fears the Lord at the end of of chapter 111 with the wicked man who rejects the Lord at the end of 112. Listen to what verse 10 says. The wicked man will see and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked come to nothing. The godless see the blessings and honor of the righteous, and they're bitter, they're angry, they're full of envy. They gnash their teeth, they stomp their feet, they yell and scream, they they show their anger and their envy. But the wicked will not achieve their purposes. They won't realize their dreams, and ultimately in the end they will die in disappointment and come to nothing. And that's not, the verse isn't there to cause us to rejoice. That's not a, yeah, they get what they deserve. That's not what that's about. That's a warning. That's an invitation to the wicked to turn from their sinful ways and fear the Lord and pursue a life of righteousness. You see, there are two paths we can choose. We can choose the narrow way that leads to life or we can choose the wide way that leads to death. We can choose the way of the righteous who fears the Lord or the way of the wicked who rejects the Lord. We can choose the way of Jesus or the way of the world. The choice is yours. Which will you choose? Today I pray that you would choose the way of Jesus Christ to become a child of God this morning, to pledge your allegiance to Him, as Kelly was saying, to commit your life to follow in the ways of Jesus Christ so that you can experience His blessings, so that you can know that He is a God of grace and compassion and holy and awesome is His name. And for those of us this morning who are Christians, we still have a choice every day. Will we simply enjoy God's blessings as if we're entitled to them? Or will we live in such a way that we are sharing His blessings with others? Will we reflect the characteristics of Jesus Christ, shining His light before others so that they can see His good works and glorify our Father in heaven. How will you live as a blessed people, church? Because First Baptist Church Thompson, we have been blessed. God has given us great blessings. Today, for Julie and I, marks 17 years we've been here. This is 17 years ago. Today, this Sunday, I became the youth minister here at First Baptist Church. It has been a blessing. For us, it has been a blessing. And I'm very much aware of the great responsibility that comes with those blessings. I'm not perfect at it, but I at least am aware of it. 
Are you aware of your responsibilities? Are you aware? And are you striving to live those responsibilities? Let's pray. Father, we love You and thank You for Your grace and Your mercy that You do not treat us as we deserve. You treat us with grace and compassion. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in love. You are quick to forgive. And there may be someone in this room today that needs to put their faith and trust in You to surrender their lives to You and experience Your grace and compassion for the first time. I pray, Father, they would step out. They would make that change and become Your child today. Father, for all of us that are believers, I pray that You would help us to every day live with an amazing sense of gratitude and humility that You have blessed us with so much. And may that humility and may that fear of the Lord drive us to seek every day to be responsible, to be good stewards of those blessings. To use them not for our selfish purposes, but for Your glory and Your grace. Father, I pray You would speak to our hearts today and move among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand? You come as the Lord leads you today.